perfect offering There is a crack, a crack in everything That's how the light gets in Welcome to the Thinking God Podcast, where we find people of faith who believe there's still a valid reason for hope in the world. And this week, my guest is Steve Brown. Um, Steve Brown, this is going to be a really fun one. Uh, I have known Steve for a number of years and have been really looking forward to getting him on the podcast. He is the founder of the Key Life Network, which exists to communicate the deepest messages of gospel and ministry. He's got a B.A. in philosophy and religion from High Point College and a theological master's from Boston University School of Theology. And he is a visiting professor of practical theology at Knox Theological Seminary and at Westminster Theological Seminary. And when you hear him, you realize he has one of the great radio voices of all time. If I had Steve Brown's radio voice, I'm not sure I'd ever stop listening to my own voice. Fortunately, uh, I don't (laughs) for the rest of the world. But I'm um, excited about this interview and hope you enjoy this interview with Steve Brown. Dr. Steve Brown is, says he's no guru, but he has been something of a guru to me, I will have to say. Steve was uh, sort of the Johnny Appleseed of grace. He was spreading those seeds before most anybody else that I was reading anyway. And you were writing and talking and preaching about grace, real grace, a kind of grace that didn't have a hook in it decades ago. And I, that you were the first person on my radar anyway doing that. He is the author of 18 books, unless I've missed one, including his latest, Hidden Agendas, Dropping the Mask That Keep Us Apart, Three Free Sins, Scandalous Freedom, and one of the best books on prayer in our generation, and I will say that as a person who reads three books a week, Approaching God, tremendous book on prayer. He's the host of radio oh, programs, heard on more than 600 stations, Steve Brown, etc., Key Life, and the You Think About That radio spots of hope and encouragement. He also smokes a pipe and reads Stephen King and doesn't care who he offends because he's not looking for a new job. <laughs> Welcome, Steve. It is so good to talk to you uh, again, Greg. You are fresh air. You really are. And you say nice things about me, so you've got to be wise. That's the first step towards wisdom, yeah. And the the second step is to say what's true. And uh, that's been one of your hallmarks. And you've talked about that. You've been speaking the truth for a long time, but now you're saying as you're getting older and you call it cramming for finals, that you're being even more transparent in what you say and teach. You know, I really am. I I don't like getting old. Nobody does. Uh, you know, the good news is you're going to heaven, and the bad news is you're going on Thursday. So I'm not altogether happy with that. But, you know, there's there really are some advantages to being old. And one of them is you don't give a rip. I mean, you really don't care. You don't care what people think about you. You're not looking for uh, another wife. You're not looking for another church. Your career is pretty much over. You're where you're going to be. And so, and I got enough money to pay the mortgage. I'm the boss of the ministry. I'm a part of, so nobody can fire me. Uh, You know, it goes on, and, and all of a sudden I wake up and think, I can say whatever I want to say. <laughs> Greg, one time at the Billy Graham Training Center, I said, the reason I don't I don't get drunk is because I'd say what I really meant. And a guy in the front row, which was quite inappropriate, just stood up and said, oh, yeah, and you don't do that now? <laughs> and I wanted to say, mister, you have no idea. But now that I'm old, I kind of say things without thinking, and it's and they'll just say, "Well, Steve's turning senile," um, and and make excuses for me. So I'm speaking truth in a way I never have before. Do you find when you do that, especially at some of these more uh, uh, this nomenclature is really weird, but conservative, let's say older traditional church events, that people. Yeah. F- are sort of resonating with it, and they've just been afraid to say it, or are they more offended, or are a little bit of both, or you know, uh, the kinds of things that uh, that you and I both speak that are that seem to be very controversial. Um, God's people know to be true; they really do, and they just couldn't. Nobody was saying it, and they thought they're probably not saved to even think it. And and so when somebody comes along, 
like you or like me, and we've got the chutzpah to say it. You Let me tell you a story that's really kind of funny. And you stop me if I just go on and on and on. I have a tendency. That's another problem with old age. You know, that's the, great, the one great thing about the convergence of modern technology and going on and on is podcasts can go as long as we want to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I don't have a sponsor. Well, anyway, it's just me. and so we're... It's just you and me. Right. Hey, uh, I, I, this has been three or four years ago. Uh I go to the Cove every year and do a seminar, which is a beautiful place up in the mountains of North Carolina that Mr. Graham, Mr. and Mrs. Graham, you know, created for God's people. And they have two hotels that Ruth Graham decorated, and it's a beautiful place. And I like going there. And uh, But one time, uh, Cliff Barrows, who just died last week, asked me to come and do a senior seminar. Somebody else that was supposed to do it, and I think it was the president at Moody, and something had happened, and he couldn't come. And So Cliff said, Steve, you come up and do it. And I said, all right. And I had an opening, so I went up there and did it. And I was working on that book, Free Free Sins, at the time. Now, you got to know that at a senior seminar at a Graham event, those are the leaders in the church. I mean, they're the ones that have given the money, who've done the work, who've been doing it for all their lives and never backed off. Well, I was working on three free sins, and they didn't know who in the world I was. They, you know, I was in, they knew I wrote books and they knew I did media sometimes, but they didn't know. I mean, they had never been a part of my ministry, but I decided. I'm going to share this whole thing with them. And uh, you you, you can imagine, because you've probably been there, but Greg, after I did four sessions, and the first session, they were in shock. I, I think the man in front turned to his wife and said, Gertrude, I don't even think he's saved. And, uh, I mean, it was real shock. I mean, here was a guy who was saying to these people who really are, leaders, you know, the doers of the church, that they weren't worth being, and that it didn't matter because Jesus loved them. And uh, and by the second, and, and it was kind of hostile, by the second session, Greg, they were beginning to get it. By the third session, it they had been pretending all their lives the way we all do. And all of a sudden, somebody said, Jesus loves you anyway. And uh, they were beginning to think this might be really good news. By the fourth session, they were speaking in tongues. And when and Greg, when my wife and I drove away from the cove, I had on a blue blazer, which I have about 80 of them, so I don't have to think about what to wear. And uh, you could hardly see it for the face powder of the hugs I got from the women. I mean, I have never, I told Anna, I said, I've never been affirmed that way. And that's what happens if those of us who get this thing are willing to say it and to say it without anger or without making an obscene gesture or without telling people, you know, you're a bunch of cretins and you don't, if we can be what we're called to be, real, screwed up, sinful, then I, I, 90% of God's people will react positively to that. 10% will be the ones that will get the rocks and start throwing them. Yeah, there's that. I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, cut you off. Well, I really believe that. I really do. I I, uh, one time Gloria Gay, I was off on a kick about how we were treating gays. And, uh, Gloria Gaither, I was on a talk show with her. And I like her. And, she, and, uh, I was talking about how God was going to judge us because we treated people, gay and lesbian people, so bad. And she stopped and she said, Steve, I haven't found that true. And you know, sometimes somebody will say something to you, and you realize they're right and you're wrong. 
And she said in the church, she said, I've experienced what you're talking about. But most people in the church are not that way at all. And when she said it, I thought, you know, that's true. Ninety percent of the people in the church, and they're usually not in leadership, but they bake cookies for you. And they, they'll whisper in your ear, I'm praying for you. And what people like you and me do is that we give those people a voice, and it drives the 10% nuts. Uh, they're the most, they're the meanest, most condemning, uptight, angry bunch on the face of the earth. But the 90%, Greg, they're different. Well, that's a great story. I mean, I, I think I've experienced it, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. My dad was really good friends with Cliff Bears, by the way. My, my dad passed earlier this year as well. Um, but most people have been, if they've grown up in a traditional church situation, particularly the people you would run into at the Cove probably, have been told, you know, Jesus forgave you of your sins, but there's you're still paying on time. I mean, you still owe something for this. <laughs> and when somebody, so the genius of saying you get three free sins kind of opens their mind to the notion, what have I been paying for my sins all my life? I got There are free sins, and uh, that was a great so idea. True. That was a really good idea. Why, why did the 10% miss it, though? Why do the leaders miss it when, I think I agree with you, I think if you can scratch the surface, uh, you look at every little church, there are people there doing things that nobody will ever know about that are really world-changing. Right. But if you looked at it from the surface and see the proclamations and the guys that are interviewed when things are going on, you'd think they were hateful and mean-spirited and narrow-minded. That's so true, man. I uh, And I, I think the reason, I, first, religion makes you weird if you let it. <laughs> I mean, it really does. It, it'll make you self-righteous. I mean, all religions do that, not just ours. Religion, you know, makes you look down on other people. It has an us and them quality to it. Uh, and and it, you've got to be aware of the dangers to which Jesus spoke often. Uh, that's what Matthew 23 is all about. I mean, that's a scary passage. Uh, and it has to do with very religious people. And once you let religion make you weird, you got to protect your weirdness. You got to protect the power. You got to protect the name. You got to protect the money. When somebody comes along and says, "That's all phony. That's not. You don't have to protect something that's that unreal." Uh, they get very angry because their lives are defined by it. But that's not true of most Christians. Um, some of the sweetest, and gosh, uh, Greg, I have talked to pastors. We have over 5,000 pastors on our mailing list, and I talk to a lot of pastors. And when I talk about that 90-10 thing, they say they'll stop for a minute and say that's not true. And then they'll say, yeah, it is. I just thought. And it, they're people that don't get credit for anything. They may not even be doing anything. <clears throat> I found those. I'm, Greg, I'm a part of a small group that I'm not leading, and I've never done that before in the church where I worship. I, uh, you know, if I go to lead a small, if I go to a small group just to be a part of it, I screw it up. I intimidate the teacher because I'm a professor at the seminary here, and I do media stuff, and so they get, and everybody gets phony, and it, so three years ago, my wife and I got to thinking we ought to be a part of a small group in our church, and uh, we both agreed after praying about it, <laughs> and she said, honey, if we do this, you've got to shut up. <laughs> You And it's going to take a long time for them to see how bad you really are. And so, and Greg, you'd be proud of me. I've done that. I've been, I have, I have bitten my tongue in the face of more heresy than you can imagine. <laughs> wow, that is impressive. <laughs> and I am done it. I mean, I really, I'm not a peep. I mean, I'm fun. I mean, I'm fun. I'm with them and, you know, at the beginning. But when we get into serious stuff, I just sit there. And bite my t I don't say anything. And they've accepted me. And, Greg, I, let me tell you, 
I see church happening in that little group in ways, and they're all old people like me. The, the care they show for each other, the forgiveness they give uh, the preacher, the, the ways they get grace profoundly. They're not sure it's true, but they hope it is. And, and, and they, you know, they'll adopt a child in our church or a family. Nobody ever knows it. And I just sometimes sit there and think, Lord, thank you for letting me see this before I die, because I'm less cynical than I used to be. Well, why, why do you think it is, and I, I think it's changing, and I want to get to that next, but that the 90% has let the 10% get away with being that, <laughs> uh, standing in the front and saying things that when they go home, they, you know, like Gertrude and Al say, you know, that was... I didn't really believe what he said today because it didn't really affect my neighbors and what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> yeah, but they right. they still pay a salary and he's still their pastor, right? You know, you're yeah, you're right. And I don't know if I understand all of that, except we have this mythological view in the church, and uh, it's that uh, Christians that Jesus died to make us nice. I wrote a I wrote a book a number of years ago called No More Mr. Nice Guy about Christian boldness. He died to make us loving and kind and gentle. But in terms of the colloquial feeling, he didn't die to make us nice. And so you'll find in the church people agreeing with people they don't even agree with, thinking that they're wrong and those people must be right. Uh, you'll find people in the church who um, just don't want to make waves because Christians don't do that, who never speak truth because truth is sometimes painful. And it's become a part, I think, of our corporate culture. You know, it, it, wouldn't it be wild if sometime in church, you know, a pastor was laying it on and you know, telling people they're going to hell because they did something that is already covered by the cross. If somebody stood up and said, Pastor, you're a fruitcake, that's not biblical. That's not what Jesus said. All you're doing is protecting your stuff. You stop it, and we'll keep you as our pastor. (laughs) Now, if you ever are at a place, Greg, where that happens. You sell everything you own because Jesus is coming back. <laughs> well, you know, the only church I ever heard of that did anything close to that was Mike Gacanelli's church. Uh, remember, he used, oh, yeah. he used to post the slowest-growing church in California. <laughs> and he would have, I loved him. I would, miss him. Uh, yeah, I think we all do. But he would have people raise their hands if they had questions in the middle of his sermon, just stop him. And, and, and the, I think you may have told this story one day, but it was in one of his books about a— 16-year-old girl, and they were talking about the carnival coming to town, what they could do. And she said, why don't we feed them? Why don't we take care of them while they're here? And this is, comes out of the mouth <laughs> of a kid. But, but you know, the, the people are not going to put up with us anymore. If you look at all the millennial studies and all, they don't see uh, God as somebody to rebel against, to be an atheist. They see it as irrelevant. And that's the new challenge, I, I think. The, the other thing you mentioned, um, that uh, the people being honest and, and, and being able to learn and sit back. I'm with you. It's harder when you've, you've read and re- you read all the time and you listen to people and you do things and when you're in a smaller group just to, to bite that tongue, especially when you hear somebody just so far out in left field. But um, the 12-step groups, I uh, do a lot of ministry with folks, and uh, you'll hear somebody come in that has just walked in off the street, got two hours clean, and they're a meth addict, but they'll say something that obviously is directly from the Holy Spirit. It didn't, they're not educated, and you're just, you're just blown away. You realize how little you really do know when you start hearing things like that. Yeah, isn't that true? And you mentioned I, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's amazing where God is moving and with weird people in funny places. Uh, and, you know, I see that a lot. Somebody that's really screwed up gets it. And somebody that's been doing it forever doesn't understand. And, uh, you know, I'm sometimes in that. I, God keeps sending me people like you and, and uh, somebody like the drug addict who really gets it. And I have to hear from you 
in order to be reminded about what I'm about. But isn't it good to see God doing his thing? I've been encouraged. I really have. And I think you were a real encouragement to me early on because I I came out of the Jesus movement uh, in the early 70s and... You know, uh, the church was not real fond of us, and by and large, <laughs> I know some of the yeah, people. Yeah, right. And went, ended up in uh, a Christian college and two seminaries. And um, <laughs> But the whole time, I believed what you've been talking about, grace, the whole time, but it never went over very well in class. I got fired from churches after that because I was thinking, well, oh. you know, God says he's going to reconcile it. He says he's got the grace, to, you know, he's got this covered, and people didn't want to hear that. So I reached the point where I had... Um, I was beginning to think either I was missing something or I was one of the last people on earth waiting for Jesus to come back. <laughs> and then then I started seeing some of your stuff, and it was very encouraging, and you were very kind. You wrote me a couple of times, and one of the things you said was, because uh, at that point I left, I got into journalism and worked for a number of uh, organiz- news organizations across the country over the years, but uh, you said that uh, it was better to be good for nothing than to get paid for being good. And so I've been yeah, trying to be good for nothing for, for all these years, and, uh, and I'd appreciated that encouragement. But the idea of grace without a hook in it, because when I hear grace taught even now, I think it's working its way in a little bit. But I'll hear somebody talk about grace for 20 minutes, but they spend the last five throwing the hook back in there. Uh, they can't quite oh, let I know. it go. <laughs> Greg, it scares the hell out of us. We don't, you know, we you hear that. That's what Bill Hendricks wrote in that book, Exit Interviews. He's, he said that he heard everywhere, we've got to be careful of this grace thing because people will take advantage of it. And he said, the first time I heard that, I thought, you know, that makes sense. And But then he heard it over and over and over again, and he began to realize something's really wrong here. And, uh, and, and thank, and man, I've been there where you were. You know, I thought for a while, I said, Lord, I'm the only one doing this, and I think I'm screwing people up. And and you got to stop me. I don't want to do that. I think I'm wrong. And God very graciously sent me Jack Miller and some others. They came along and affirmed it. And I began to see that, no, that what I was teaching was right. It's what the Scripture teaches. And, Greg, the thing you got to be careful about is that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because we get this from the Scripture, and if we start saying the Scripture's wrong, then we don't have any resource. We get this from the Reformation, and if we start looking at Reformation doctrine as if those were weird guys, and we don't have to bother with that anymore, we lose our anchor and the soil from which we grew. The way home is, believe it or not, orthodoxy, if it's rightly understood, because that's where the truth is. And and you got to be careful in screwing around with that. And I do sometimes, and every time I do, I get called back. You know, this stuff is good news. It's incredibly good news. God's not angry. He's not a child abuser. And he knows how neat. By the way, I was in Nashville about a couple of months ago. I don't know if you know the name Ray Orland, but you ought to have him on your podcast sometimes. You'd, You'd love him. His daddy was a famous preacher in California. I know the last name, yeah. Well, that this is the son. And... He has a Ph.D. He's a tremendous scholar. He's um, a wonderful pastor and preacher. But he, kind of like you, ran through two churches. I mean, they kicked him out. Uh, he And he doesn't, he's not a fighter, so he just left, and it almost killed him. He was depressed and down for months. The friends that he had touched surrounded him, and they decided to to create a church um, that that other church for people that other churches wouldn't accept. And so they went to the worst part of Nashville. They started this church called Emmanuel Church, <laughs> and and uh, 
he invited me, and it's become a mega church, Greg. I mean, the thing has exploded, and he he invited me up to do a grace conference, and I had the best time. It's the weirdest bunch of ragamuffins you've ever seen in the middle of the worst area. Well, it's becoming kind of an end place now, but when they started, it was just a slum, and he said, and I... On Sunday morning, he got up. I'd done the conference over the weekend. He got up on Sunday morning to open the worship service. And I looked out over this congregation of, I mean, they just didn't, it didn't look like a normal congregation. And you know how he opened his service? He said, and he said it very quietly, if you're needy, if you sin big, and you think God's angry at you, if you think God can never use you again, if you're lonely, if you sometimes doubt, and if you're afraid, Jesus says, welcome, you're in the right place. Is that cool? That's very cool. That is very cool. And I think that's where um, the the churches that are going to survive are going to have to head in that direction. One of the things that's amazing, without even prompting I think every single person I've interviewed to date somewhere began talking about Matthew 25 and, you know, the, the place, yeah. the, really the, the, the most clearly delineated place where Jesus separates people. That's there more than anywhere else. And he basically defines it. And both groups ask the same questions. When, when did we see this? They, one was doing it and one wasn't, one was waiting around yeah. to see when it was going to be. A, how did you get to this place though, Steve? How did you get to the place? I know you didn't start out as a grace teacher. Uh, what, how did you get to that place? <laughs> You're asking me how I became such a spiritual giant. How did you become such a spiritual? Let's just say spiritual genius. Let's use new as a new word, spiritual genius. I don't know. I really, and I'm not. I I mean, this is insane. I, you know, I would like to say, you know, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that's what changed me. Or, but it really didn't. I'm thankful every day for a daddy who was a drunk, and who loved me. I'm, um, I shouldn't be, but I'm thankful most every day, uh, for my sins. Um, I'm not a very good person, by the way. I'm, I'm really not. I mean, people say, oh, you're so authentic. That's bull. I'm not talking that way. This isn't authenticity. It's just a fact. I mean, I struggle with this stuff. I struggle to be good. And so I thought, I'm going to have to leave or find some way uh, to deal with me. And listen, when you're as old as I am, Greg, I mean, I can't hardly stand myself anymore. I mean, I have hurt more people. And, well, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to confess you're not that, I love you, but you're not that safe. <laughs> how cool, how old like, are you? Keep saying you're old. There may, be, there may be somebody else listening to this, but, <laughs> but I think it was my need. I really do. And, uh, and I have found, <clears throat> I've, I've started saying to congregations, in fact, I think I said it to that thing at the Cove, <laughs> Well, I was tell- telling you about being affirmed so much. I told people, I said, you know, if you knew Jesus was coming back on Thursday, uh, you would pray and fast and repent. And do you know what I'd do? I'd get drunk because I don't drink. And you ought to be drunk one time before you die. And I said, I'd buy a Mercedes. I'm getting tired of my Honda. And I would... Um, and I'd run up the credit cards because there was a lot of neat stuff that I've been wanting to get. And I couldn't afford, but if I didn't have to pay it back, I'd go ahead and get it. And the reason you're so shocked and I'm so pleased is because Jesus likes me more than he does you. <laughs> and I'm making a point, of course. And the point is that Jesus likes us. And there's no, as you put it, hook in it. I mean, he really does. And um, when you get it, it changes everything. I think you said one time something to the effect that you want, you wanted to get to the place where you had nothing to hide, nothing to protect. That was sort of the goal of, of yeah. following him. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, if, if we really believed what we said, we believe that God's sovereign, 
that we're forgiven, that Christ's righteousness has been given to us, and that's all we've got. We really don't have anything to protect, and and we don't have to be right anymore. In fact, we don't have to be God anymore, and that's a great relief. It's hard being God. I've worked hard at it. <laughs> yeah, I think it took me a long time to learn that the, the job of Holy Spirit was already filled. It wasn't open. There but was he no, was doing no all openings. right. Yeah, right. <laughs> no openings there. <laughs> One of the things, and I, I don't know how old you are, and I, so, but I think I'm you're... 75. Okay. Uh, didn't you just find out you were younger or something? Somebody told me some story about Yeah, that. I found out I was a year younger than I thought. I was Last year I was telling people I was 75 and I was 74. It was like getting a reprieve, wow. man. <laughs> you get a free year there. How did that yeah, happen? Yeah, I got a free year. <laughs> How did that happen? I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm old. That's how it happened. <laughs> well, the reason I brought that, I mentioned it is, I, so you're roughly 15 years older than me. So, and um, one of the things I'm running into, and people of my generation and yours, that even people in ministry and stuff particularly are starting to say, I don't think the way I did 25 or 30 years ago. And many of them, I think, don't recognize the good in that, that we should have grown from where we were 20 or 25 years ago. Yeah, of um, course. When, when somebody says, we liked your sermons better 20 years ago, then they're stuck somewhere. It's not you. They're stuck in a place that... It's so um, true. <laughs> yeah. How, how have your views changed? How's your view of Scripture changed, your view of church over the years? What what can you... Okay. Uh, my, my view of people uh, has changed radically. And my view of myself has changed radically. I, uh, uh, I'm a lot worse than I thought. I wrote a book called What Was I Thinking? Things I've Learned Since I Knew Everything. And, and the things, I found out that self-righteousness is a lot worse than I thought it was. That I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. That people are a lot worse than I thought they were. That God's a lot bigger than I thought he was. It's those kinds of things that have to do with living, which, by the way, I got from Scripture. And and uh, I don't know why I didn't see it when I was in seminary when I was younger. But the main, the main things, and that's what I was talking about before, haven't changed. <clears throat> Back in the Jesus movement, I wrote a book called So Now You're a Christian, and it's been reprinted a thousand times and under different titles. Um, Welcome to the Family, they printed it and something else. But it was basically a book of biblical doctrine for new Christians. Because, you know, they were coming into the church in droves. They didn't know dink about anything. And so it's, it wasn't heavy, but it was just a chapter on the Bible and on uh, you know, simple things, uh, and it was—it's been used a lot. But they asked me, Ravel. It went out of print years ago, so I wrote it back before you were born. But they—they um, they decided to reprint it and uh, to bring it back, and they asked me to write a new introduction to it, and uh, I ended up saying, I didn't make many changes to this book. Uh, you know, if you have a book of science and it's over 10 years old, you should throw it away because it's not relevant anymore. But I said, this book is true. And it was true then, and it's more true to me now than it was when I first wrote it. And then I said, but the author has changed a lot. And not always for the better. So, my view of Scripture hasn't changed. I am, I'm very orthodox in terms of my own doctrine and theology, because that's all we got is the truth, propositional truth. Uh, I really believe in the Trinity. I believe in the Incarnation. I believe in the Virgin Birth. I believe a dead man got out of a grave and that he's going to come back. I believe everything you know, properly nuanced, everything the Scripture teaches. And that's the basis of what doesn't change. When God says, I am the same yesterday and today and forever, that says a lot about a lot of important things. 
and it is the soil out of which grace grows. None of it makes sense. Listen, if if you know you're going to be unconditional about screwed up people, I get that. I am too. But if you're if you're not aware of the difference between good and evil in your own life and anybody else's life, then you're going to lose it. I mean, it ain't going to last. You're you're just not that benevolent. Uh, oh, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you, Greg. Although I worry about you sometimes. Yeah, me and you both. I'll, I'll, you can share. Yeah. There's plenty to worry about here. Uh, yeah, right. But you know, the, one of the so, things too, the, the golden sort of the golden calf of being right, though. I mean, the things you just said, I agree with. But there was a time when I would have fought with anybody yeah. about that. I would just you wanted to argue. I was smart enough to argue with you and smart enough to to win the argument. Oh, me too. But, oh, me too. But I lost a lot of friends that way. Oh, me too. Hey, Greg, I te- you know what? I Believe it or not, there's another book in me, and I just sent the idea to my publisher. I'm going to write a book about how to speak truth without being insufferable. Insuffer- and that's going to be the working title. They'll change it. But what I want to do is talk about how dangerous it is to be right and um and once you get that part the dangers of it then you can speak truth in a lot of places because the truth is your truth you know the reason that pagans get so mad at us when we talk about sin is that we're always talking about them and not us if if but we're not changing the definition of sin that would violate what we're talking about but we're right about that, but we're wrong because of who we are. So if I get up and say, listen, let me tell you the truth about me, and then say, after I've confessed, I, I did a funeral for my barber. Uh, I know I'm bald and don't need a barber, but I love my barber shop. They don't let women in there, and I, and it's kind of old-timey, and I go in there even if I don't need a haircut. But I had a barber, Tom, who was the biggest pagan I've ever known, and he came to Christ the night before he died, and because of his friends who were hellraisers, uh, didn't know anybody religious except me. They wanted me to do the memorial for him. And, I, and Greg, I did it at the Banana River here. And they were smoking pot and drinking booze. They had balloons everywhere. And I came in a tie. And they had jazz playing. They had a jazz guy playing jazz. And I thought, what in the world am I going to do? So I went over to this guy playing jazz. And I said, look, son, uh, finish this set because I'm going to do something religious. And he said, cool, dude. And so when he stopped. <laughs> You know what I did, Greg? I got up and said, and I had people talk about my friend Tom, and and, and it was the wildest. Uh, I mean, you can't believe what they said. Uh, one one lady got up and said, "You know, Tom was always hitting on me, but he always respected me, and he loved me when nobody else would." And somebody, a one hippie guy, guys old as I am, with a ponytail got up with a beer and started crying and another old hippie climbed up beside him put his arm around him and held his beer so he could talk (laughs) well anyway when all this is over i said to this bunch it's obvious i'm the best dressed person here but let me tell you something that's not so obvious i'm also the most screwed up person here and i confess my sins and then I said to these people, I said, I love Tom, too. And Tom's not here. He's he's with Jesus. And he's not with Jesus because he was good, because you know better than that. He's with Jesus because I went to see him the night before he died. And I told him to shut up. I was going to tell him something important. And I told him, about, and I presented the gospel. And there are people that came to Christ that day um, because of that. And I'm going to write a book about that. I'm going to write a book about how you can be right and be wrong 
and how you can be right and be right. And I'm going to change the world. If you believe that, yeah. you'll believe anything. Well, we both know how hard writing books are. Book that is a difficult thing. Oh. You, something you mentioned updating the, the the book on Christian basics. My, to be honest with you, Steve, my experience has been that coming out of the Jesus movement, the people who had not, not been in church were much easier to accept the ideas of Jesus than the people who had grown up in churches and been basically taught hell. It starts with hell, and you work your way back to Jesus for all those years. Um, I agree. The, the, I, I, listen. Having to unlearn stuff too. is harder than learning stuff. So, I mean, it's... Uh, I know. And, and it's because of what we started talking about, the people that are protecting everything, and we got to stop it. You know, I see that happening in the church I'm attending. I, I don't, have you, do you, are you familiar with Kevin Labby? No. He's my pastor, and he's the most vulnerable guy. I mean, there are times when I, think, I say, I don't believe I'd have said that. And uh, he's the one that invited Tullian to come and be work with us. Hmm. And he and got killed for it. And, and I just I love that guy. And I see the people in our church beginning to react to it. I mean, they accepted Tullian. I mean, do you know of any other church around that would have? Not many, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. And and Kevin, my pastor, got got burned. I mean, it, it, I mean, there are people that hate his guts right now, but he didn't shilly shally, and he doesn't. Well, that's the thing. If you are, if you like, you you've written about this and talked about it a lot, Steve. But if you practice grace, you are going to get burned. I mean, it's not about you yeah. being successful. I mean, being successful with grace is not how great things go for you. That's right, and that's one of the reasons. Going back to something else that we said, that I think it's important you have a mean streak. I mean, and I, that's not a good word for it, but that there be boldness in your backbone uh, because there mean. What's that thing about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I'm the meanest SOB in the valley. <laughs> well, there's a sense in which if you're going to preach grace, you better have some boldness built into you. And you still got to be gentle and loving and kind, even even to the Pharisees. But but uh, it doesn't mean you, you don't that you shouldn't overturn some money tables. I was going to say, Jesus had a little trouble with being loving and kind with the Pharisees. <laughs> yeah, but he was at dinner. You read that's Luke true. 7. That's true. He, not all of them. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> Luke 7 is my favorite passage in the world because of that dumb prostitute. What prostitute would crash a Pharisee dinner party? That's stupid. And, you know, a sinner can repent, but stupid's forever. <laughs> Well, you've been at this a long time, and you've you've watched huge dramatic shifts in the world, but also in the church. Uh, you know, yeah. it's incredibly, it looks incredibly different than it did twenty, thirty, forty years ago. And you go back uh, even yeah. further, uh, and the biggest, fastest growing churches, when you look at all the lists, are the mega churches. Most of them have satellites, flat screens everywhere, and they're one pastor. And um, at the same time, every study Barna and everybody else does says people are craving community. Uh, I wonder how that's going to play out in the years ahead. I don't know. I have no. I do feel. By the way, you mentioned the Jesus movement. Uh, I I think that was a genuine awakening. By the oh, way, I know it was. You know, it was just amazing. It was supernatural, and I feel right now that we're sitting on top of something like that. I, um, I mean, I just smell it everywhere I go. I. And it's it, it's kind of like that. It's kind of the feeling, uh, you know. The church was dead as a doornail. Uh, it was there was bad stuff going on. Uh, the people that didn't believe anything had taken control. It was just awful. And you, we finally said, you know, this isn't fixable. Jesus, you got to come back. Well, he did, but not the way we thought he was going to. And man, it blew our socks off. Yeah, it wasn't leadership. And I think that's going to happen. No, it wasn't. Never was. It was the ragamuffins who led it. 
And many of them uh, were continued to be screwed up, but they got the one thing right was Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's well put. You got it. Um, your newest book's Hidden Agendas. Uh, what, what made you decide to write? I know you've talked about this in your preaching and teaching over the years. Why did you decide to write this book on Hidden Agendas? Well, I think I wanted to say to people, look, you don't have to pretend. It's hard to pretend because when you tell lies, you got to cover it up with more lies. And pretty soon you've got a whole lifetime of lies. And, and uh, you know, your masks are become your definition. And that's hard. And so I felt sorry for me because I was a preacher. You know, preachers wear a lot more masks than anybody else does. Um, Ones that want to get paid to. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, so I felt sorry for preachers and for me and for most people I know who are working really hard to get people to like them or accept them or assume they're Christian. Or, and what would it be like if you just said, quid in forum? By the way, Greg, <laughs> let me teach you something. That's Latin for what the hell. Yep. Had a lot of Latin and, in days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and you can use it, and people won't know you're cussing, and they'll think you're smart. <laughs> so, but I did, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of attitude so you could just live life? And know that um, that the real your soul, the real you, um, was about Jesus, and you can't help it. I mean, it would change the world. Well, I thought my book would, but it's not going to, Greg. I, I think that every time I write a book, Lord, <laughs> you're going to make me be like Max Lucado this time, right? <laughs> And he laughs, and the angels laugh. But someday I'm going to hit it, though. You never know, Greg. Hey, maybe this podcast will put it over the top, Steve. <laughs> yeah, right. This podcast. The one thing you just said, though, is, is and it, it has only come with age, and really I can't point my finger at anything else. I feel like I'm getting more towards what you're talking about just as I get older and I'm able to begin to filter down what's important and see what's going on, yeah. and see the people around me, how they respond, and how they're hurting. When you were writing this book, did you discover any of your own hidden agendas you had missed before? Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> My life's a hidden agenda. <laughs> you, oh, man, you have no idea. And it was kind of freeing to write the book, to be reminded I don't have to do that. And part of that was being old, you know, that I don't, I don't have to care anymore about what people think, but... A lot of it was the insight I got from Scripture in terms of trying to understand what was going on here a, a lot, too. So, uh, it's I, good. These next two questions I ask everybody, and the first one I think I know the, the beginning answer to because what you just said earlier. Hey, wait before you ask that question. Right. Let, uh, get, if you haven't read Andre Nowen's book, The Return of the Prodigal. I have read that you book. To, on your suggestion. Isn't that a wonderful book? It's a wonderful that, book. That book changed my... I mean, that whole thing about the father as I was getting older absolutely blew me away. Uh, and it put legs on what you said about as you get older. Okay, go ahead and ask your question. Get, get those two. I want to get back to that. Cause, but the, I ask these two questions. One of them I know your answer to, so I'm going to ask you to kind of define it. I ask everybody the first thing is, do you believe in hell? Because there's been a lot of things. So I'm going to ask you, what is hell, since I know you believe in hell? What do you think hell is? They ask God. Uh, they ask uh, Johnny Cash, Wah-Wah, uh, ask him if he really believed in hell. And he said, yes, ma'am, I've been there. <laughs> so I think hell, I kind of, I like C.S. Lewis. I like the great divorce. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some verses that scare, pardon the expression out of me, but I use the word carefully that scare the hell out of me. They're pretty in your face. So I'm not going to futz around with it. But I do know that any doctrine of election or of hell or anything else that violates what's clearly revealed in Scripture about God's love isn't true. So, you know, Lewis says that hell is the greatest monument 
to human freedom ever created. But my problem is I'm a Calvinist, so I don't even know if I can agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and there are people, I mean, I think the whole concept that has been opened up, I mean, there have been a lot of books written about it. I mean, McLaren wrote, Brian McLaren wrote one. Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, was a big book yeah. that yeah. Uh, people actually began to think about and talk about it. And, you know, to an outsider particularly, if you're a, a three-year-old living in Syria right now, you probably think you're in hell. I mean, I'm not sure... That, that oh, it's not getting worse than yeah, that. Nothing's right, getting right. worse than that. So people have that concept. And I, like I mentioned earlier, having grown up in a Southern Baptist tradition, the Deep South, I'm in South Carolina, you grew up in North Carolina, so many yeah. sermons start with hell, and you just kind of hope they work their way back to Jesus before they're done. They're just trying to scare everybody. <laughs> that is so true. And you know that often, some, well, sometimes, came from a genuine burden for souls. Mm -hmm. You know, you looked at everybody, you thought they were lost, and it was up to you. And you had better give them the gospel. Or when you got home, they were going to yell at you because you let them. I one time had a film in a church that I served that some of the kids, that some of the Jesus kids had produced. And it showed a guy going into the flames of hell. And the last scene in the film he turns to the congregation and he points at them and says, why didn't you tell me? And I go, oh, even then, I wasn't sure why that was wrong, but something was wrong about that. But you can't, you know, we didn't make up the idea of hell. We got it from Jesus. But I don't think it's where God tortures somebody for all of eternity, like roasting a pig over a fire. But it's real, and people really are lost. And I wish, and any genuine Christian that doesn't wish universalism were true is probably not a Christian. I wish it were true. I just can't get around some stuff um, that, that suggests that people are lost. And, and uh, they're not lost because they don't say a Jesus prayer. Right. Uh, they're lost because they made an obscene gesture at Jesus and said, you leave me alone. And Jesus said, I don't want to do that, but, you know, if that's what you want, I'll leave you alone. And he leaves them alone for eternity. Yeah, I think that I, that, I really appreciate that definition. Because the older I get, I used to be, uh, you know, you come out of the Jesus movement, you were sort of fire and brimstone because that was sort of the yeah. seed. But yeah. I, I'm now, every time I open the Word, I seem to, the Bible, I try to I roll around the verse about he's going to redeem all things to himself, <laughs> reconcile well, everything. I hope that's yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I hope that's well, true, too. You know, one of, one of our guys, Sidlow Baxter, who wrote The Reformed Pastor, <clears throat> was a universalist. And I love telling my students that because they worship at his altar and they can't believe it. And then, you know, Carl, when I was in graduate school, Carl Bart was a real stepping stone for me. And uh, I think even though he wouldn't admit it, he was a universalist. But I can't go there. I just don't think the scripture gives you the freedom to go there. So you got to be careful. Isn't it amazing how smart seminary students are, though? How much you know when you're a seminarist? <laughs> I tell seminary students, guys, you haven't lived long enough or sinned big enough to even have an opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. The next question I ask everybody, and, and this is, I know we don't have time to fully develop this, but who is Jesus? You know, I want to give you a theological answer, but that's not what you're looking for. He's my friend and my Savior. And my God. And uh, it's all about him. That's a great answer. That's, a, that's enough. We that's can enough. talk about Christology for another yeah. hour if you want to. Well, but I just think people, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I think when uh, I'm in groups of people who have not been around it or have been around it in, 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 in toxic situations, when the word the name Jesus comes up, the definitions are so wrong. I mean, when people start talking about oh, I know. their perceptions yeah. of Jesus. Other than Jesus, who have been some of your biggest influences? You mentioned that book a while ago. Have there been books or pastors or speakers or mentors who have been oh. big influences in your life? Oh, man, the list is so long, Greg. You don't have time. i got to mention C.S. Lewis. 
uh, his son steps on has become a friend of mine. I've heard you interview him. And yeah, I really love him. Uh, in fact, our my publisher just spent a week with him in Malta uh, because I suggested that we ought to do that. But uh, C.S. Lewis, I'm looking. If you were in my study right now, I have a wall of of uh, I have a friend who likes to collect autographs, and when he finds one of somebody he thinks that I like, he'll get the autograph, frame it, and put his picture in the frame. So I'm looking at Charles Spurgeon. I'm looking at Wibbleforce on my wall right now. Oh, I'm looking some, at their actual handwriting. Yeah, I got, I got C.S. Lewis. I got uh, I got Dale Moody. Uh, I got Billy Sunday. Spurgeon, I get a bunch of them. So I got to say, all those were surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I got to mention C.S. Lewis. I love Andre now, and I, uh, oh man, I don't know. I it, don't. I don't. It's like saying, which of your children do you like the most? <laughs> do you listen to other sermons? I mean, podcasts or other sermons or other people online or people send you things. Do you still listen to other teachings now, or have you kind of gotten to the point where you're too busy? Uh, no, well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not full time at the seminary anymore. I'm teaching at Knox now, and uh, when I teach a preaching class, I've got to listen to the sermons, and I do, and I listen to my pastor's sermon very carefully because he blesses me, and I don't make a an object of avoiding sermons, uh, but I don't uh, intentionally go on the internet and listen to sermons unless somebody tells me to. And it's not because I think they're bad. They're generally better preachers than I am. I just, you know, I don't know. I'm just not that religious. <laughs> you know, you kind of heard it all too. Yeah, <laughs> man. If, if, that's right. And if our worship service goes more than an hour and 10 minutes, man, I want to walk. <laughs> Are you still enjoying your radio programs? Uh, yeah, I do. I, uh, That's key life, you know, Steve Brown, et cetera, to remind people. Yeah, I do. I I don't know if enjoy. <laughs> uh, Greg, my life's verse is whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And I, I don't have any goals. I'm not a fun kind of guy. So I do what I'm supposed to do, and then I find that joy sometimes follows. So in that sense, yeah, I do. I love doing that talk show. That's fun. What do you do? Because I like the people. I like the people that are a part of it, et cetera. What do you do with your free time? <laughs> Since you have two radio programs, I'm the dullest friend you've got, Greg. There is nobody <laughs> more dull than I am. I, I sometimes shoot my gun, but I lost my hearing the last time I shot an M1. Uh, and everybody's down to like Donald. You're a hunter or no, you shoot targets? No, I'm not a hunter, but I'm not against hunting. Right. I was out in the wilderness with my former pastor, and somebody had given him this. In, I have a Glock. I don't, I don't believe that Christians, if they're persecuted for Christ's sake, can respond. But if it's random, you can shoot them. <laughs> and so I carry a Glock. But I got. I, he had this M1. And he said, you want to shoot it? And I said, yeah. Now, I don't know if you know anything about M1s, but those were used in the Second World War, and they weigh about 18 tons. And when you fire them, it sounds like an atomic bomb. And I lost my hearing. I have gotten shots in my eardrum. I've oh. taken medications. I've been to a list of... I'm now wearing hearing aids. And... Uh, and before that, everybody sounded like Donald Duck. <laughs> so I've even given up shooting, so I don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you held on to your hearing that long? My hearing from loud music is almost gone already, and I'm nowhere near your age. I'm still Well, you're one, <laughs> one of these days. You're going to have to wear these things. What? My wife says I just wear them for show. <laughs> what, uh, what makes you laugh? I try to ask folks that, too. Everything. And things that shouldn't make me laugh make me laugh. It may be the laughter in a graveyard. I don't know. <laughs> but if you ever start thinking, 
taking life too seriously or anything except God too seriously. You know, you're missing one of the, I mean, God made giraffes. I mean, he's got to have a sense of humor. <laughs> and so if you look around, I mean, I make me laugh. I mean, I do things sometimes that I just get, I get the giggles about because they're so stupid. And so you make me laugh and everybody makes me laugh. So I laugh a lot. What's your favorite pipe tobacco? In case somebody's looking for a Christmas uh, gift for you or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I used to mix my own and then my, guy at the smoke shop died and closed they closed his shop when i bought the different brands that i mixed so i generally smoke captain black and i buy it in bulk the gold or the regular no the regular the the white okay okay and then what's your favorite pipe i like uh, you know i never met one i didn't like (laughs) i've got i've got I've got pipes that are that people have given me that are really expensive, and my favorite pipes I bought at the drugstore. <laughs> Graybos. I got a corn cob. That's my favorite of all pipes, but I can't smoke it anywhere because it makes you look like a hick. <laughs> well, but you're, you know we we're from the, the mountains of the Appalachians, so we sort of are hicks, Steve. So we kind of embrace the. Uh... <laughs> That's <laughs> does your does does it bother your wife still and your kids and stuff? Do you smoke your pipe? Um, a little bit, and only because she has um, uh, she has uh, this. She, a few years ago, she got a disease in China called Microbacterium with AV complex, and she almost died. She's fine now, but. It did a number on her lungs, so it kind of bothers her, smoke does. And so I go into my study and shut the door or go out on the patio uh, because it bothers. But it's not because it's a nasty habit. I mean, that doesn't bother her at all. But I try to be very careful about her and other people where I smoke. Well, you mentioned the next book you have in mind. What what else is next for you? What do you have planned in the, the year ahead? Um, a sermon I'm preaching on Sunday. <laughs> not, not I told you my life's verse <laughs> is whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I so appreciate you saying that because I'm around so many people who are micro planners and what are your goals? Oh, and I, know, is, and I'm just, I know. I don't do that. That's just not my thing. I, listen, you and I are the only two left in all of Christendom. And I promise not to change if you promise not to change. My hand is in the air now. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the last thing I was going to ask you is about the holiday. I mean, they make a lot of jokes that you're not a, a real uh, Christmas person. Is that true? Or they just yeah, it is. Of- but I'm I, I'm not as in your face about it as I used to be. I mean, it used I used to be irritated, and I think that was because I was a pastor. I. You know, your schedule goes haywire, and so do people. People, uh, the pain at Christmas is incredible. And uh, I think it started there. And it also, my father was an alcoholic, so Christmases weren't very pleasant. I don't have any problem with commercialism. I mean, you got to make a buck. I get that. But, I, I, but I'm better. I think I'm better. And I love Christmas Eve. That's my favorite time of the year. It's just getting there that's a pain. But I try not to ruin it for everybody else, especially my grandchildren. I look like Santa Claus. So if I start acting in a crazy way, it'll mess with their heads. So I try to pretend. Well, Steve, listen, I hope at some point you will be able to digest how far your influence has reached. I appreciate all you've done, what you've written, what you've said, and I encourage everybody to listen to uh, your radio programs and their podcasts. You can listen to them anytime. It's keylight.org. Buy your books at Amazon. Help them change the world. And uh, (laughs) I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Greg, you are a benediction. I wish we lived closer. God bless you, brother. Thanks, Steve. I do, too. Well, you heard it here first. If you haven't finished your Christmas shopping, uh, you can send Steve Brown a a can of a nice tin of Captain Black as his commercial favorite tobacco. Steve is, as I said when I was talking to him, a very refreshing 
honest, somebody with no agenda anymore. And if you haven't read any of his books, I would suggest checking his new one out. Check out his book on, on uh, prayer, like I mentioned, it's called Approaching God. And listen to Steve Brown, etc. He brings a lot of good guests on there. That's a really good radio program and podcast. It's Podcast Weekly, and it's at keylife.org. And I hope that we can continue bringing the same sort of um, engaging folks that he's been bringing in over the years. And until then, join me here again next week on the Thinking God Podcast. And until then, get out and do something to make the world a better place. Better than sunshine. Better than moonshine. Damn sure better than a